0: Would you open up to 1 Samuel, chapter 8? 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Some of you need to uh, admit it, that you absolutely love it. It's all you think about. It's all you watch on television. It's all you talk about with your friends at the diner, drinking your coffee. Some of you love it. Some of you hate it, absolutely hate it. You hate it so much you want to strangle those who love it. And some of you just don't care. You could care less. And you try your best to ignore it. You see no purpose in it, but it keeps popping up like a weed everywhere you go. So what am I talking about? It's very obvious what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politics. Some of you love it. Some of you hate it, and some of you wish it never existed. It is the blood sport, that verboten topic for dinner conversations. It is the necessary evil. Some of you are wondering why, though, is it necessary? Why do we even why do we even need government? Honestly. Well. It's because of the rope bridge principle, and I'm going to explain the rope bridge parable, like I would be telling you a Twilight Zone. I'm Rod Serling. Imagine me being Rod Serling for a second. Imagine two men on the same exact day, precisely high noon. They meet on the middle of a rope bridge hanging high over a mountain pass. These two men are both the same height, weight, and strength. They are both in a hurry to get home and they both are extremely stubborn. I need to mention one more thing. One man is from Britain and one is from America. The British man, naturally, is used to traveling to the left when passing. The American travels on the right. That means they will automatically bump into each other in the middle of the bridge, neither wanting to give in. So, we have a major problem. Who? passes first. This is why we need government. If there is no arbiter, no goodwill between them, we have a huge problem. Live and let live in this case will not work. Taken to an extreme, this situation will end in live and let die, 2,000 feet below the bridge. This happens, this parable happens every day in our society. Someone wants what another has, so he takes it. Someone damages another's property and doesn't want to pay for it. Someone hurts their neighbor's kid and doesn't care. Someone offends another with a racial slur. Someone lies on a business deal. Someone mocks the president in the sacred chambers of Capitol Hill. Someone doesn't want to pay taxes. Without some type of overarching authority, Chaos would be our natural state. So enters the need for government. Government is tricky because everyone has an opinion on how it should be formed and how it should be run. Republicans, independents, Democrats, theocrats, anarchists, fascists, communists, and even cannibals all have their own opinion on how a government or a society should be run. How do you form a more perfect union, established justice, and procured domestic tranquility when nobody agrees. It's impossible. It's hard to do this when everyone thinks they are right. And if anybody disagrees with them, they are an idiot. That's our current state of the United States political discourse. Israel during Samuel's day was no different. They had the same troubles. They had the same questions, and when it came to governing society, they were just as outspoken and opinionated as we are. And so in our next study in 1 Samuel 8, the title is Long Live the King because it is one of the solutions they have for their government. That's actually the theme is glory days. We are going to, from this point on, start talking about the kings of Israel, starting with the first king we're going to learn about today, King Saul. And it all begins with they want a new form of government, starting in verse 1 of Samuel chapter 8. Let's read. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That's where we're going to begin. If you notice in verse 6, Israel wanted a king. Samuel wasn't too happy about it because, as verse 7 said, they're doing it because it's a rejection of God, really. But really, it says all they really want is a king like everybody else. That's not a rejection of God. Why would this be a rejection of God? Well, let me show you what I call the road to the crown. It's the way that they historically got to a king. Initially, Israel, that's God's people, God's nation, they were designed to be different. They were designed to be different from all the other nations. In fact, God wanted to be their king. He wanted to rule them. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, I'll show you what I mean. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. Deuteronomy is uh, the book of the second giving of the law. And Moses is going to explain why they gave the law on Mount Sinai. And if you start in Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, he's saying, um, Keep all of these laws, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. And in verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So what God is saying is when you obey my law, the nations are going to say, wow, it is obvious you have God with you. He's so near you, he's your king. But the truth is the people didn't want God near them. Well, not as near as God wanted to be. And so what happened after God gave the Ten Commandments? They said to Moses, you know what? You speak to us. We don't want God to speak to us. We are kind of scared of him. So really this road to the crown, it goes down. It started with a theocracy where Jehovah, God himself, was king. But they didn't want him as king, so he gave them the patriarch. Patriarchs are Moses, Aaron, his brother, and Joshua. Well, they died. And after Moses, Aaron, and Joshua died, Israel got in trouble again. They didn't want to follow God, so God put them in bondage, and He raised up judges when they called out to be saved. If you go back to 1 Samuel, I want to show you how Samuel explains it in chapter 12. So they go from Jehovah's king, let Moses speak to us, and then, you know what? Just give us judges. 1 Samuel 12, Samuel's explaining this. They're getting ready to give the king. Samuel's still, he's hesitant. He doesn't want to give him a king, and so he kind of gives them a history of how they got here. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak. Jephthah and Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was king. So what he's saying is, God was your king, but you don't want him. You want a human king. Each step in the process of having a king is a further and further and further away movement from God. It's a downhill road. We travel the same road. You do. We do it all the time. In order to have things our way, or to be liked by people around us, we constantly make movements and decisions that lead us away from God. Some people would rather have rules to follow than God. Some people would rather have a strong leader tells them what to do than having God near. If we were honest, we like it better when God is at a distance. Keep him at a distance. Close enough that he can help us when we call on him, but far enough away, keep him far enough away so we can continue to do things that he probably doesn't like. I mean, how many of you really have God watching TV with you? Keep Him far enough away that He won't bother us, but close enough that He'll help us when we need Him. A lot of uh, churches do this same thing through legalism. Legalism are man-made rules and dictatorial leadership that, in a sense, give you rules instead of having a personal walk with the Spirit of God. Tell me what to wear, what times to go to church, how to cut my hair, what music to listen to, what movies to watch. And if you tell me, then that's all I need to know. I don't need to have a personal day-by-day walk with the Spirit. Well, some people ask, is it wrong to have rules? Is it wrong to have a strong leader? Are institutions and organizations intrinsically wrong? Not necessarily. Sometimes... The desire for rules, policies, and leaders, and even a strong, stable government, comes from a good place, from having pure motives. In fact, if we go back to 1 Samuel 8, we will see that their desire from a king actually sprung from a good place. It wasn't all bad. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 of 1 Samuel 8 They looked at Samuel, and they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. And so what they're saying is they're saying, Samuel, you're going to die. You're getting old. And all that's following you are these two rotten sons. We need somebody better than this. In fact, his sons, it says in verse 3, they took bribes, and they perverted justice. So in a sense... They were right. The elders were right. They were sick of these two rotten men using their positions of leadership to get rich. Do you know what never changes? People use their high positions to curry favor with rich people so they can make a little bit of money on the side. That doesn't happen in our politics, does it? Nah. Just Samuel's sons. Is it not our duty to have some sort of checks and balances to curb corruption in government? It is. In fact, in Deuteronomy 16, 18-20, God implored the people, He told the people to appoint righteous judges so they may live long in the land. It was the people's duty to appoint righteous leaders. And as citizens of this country, it's also ours. We need to vote for good men and women. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. I don't think God wants us to bury our head in the sand when we see greed, corruption, power, ruining leadership. We should step up and say something. I find even when it comes to what aisle you fall on with politics, often there's good reasons for that. Democrats do want to help the poor. Republicans do want people to take personal responsibility. Independents do want real freedom. Communists, they want equality. And cannibals are just hungry. I mean, there's, a good, there's goodness from every position, a little bit of goodness. People are not just purely evil, is what I'm trying to say. And often we need to take the time to acknowledge the opposing side's arguments, look for their good motives, Before, we're full of malice. Do you know what malice is? Malice is when I assume my opponent is just evil. Malice assumes people are always making choices from selfishness. It's not always that way. But if we go back to the story, often it is that way. (laughs) We're going to see... That, yeah, there's pure motives, but human beings most of the time are full of contradictions and hidden agendas. And the desire for a king in this story does come from a place that God says is wrong, We're impure, selfish. It's true, Samuel's sons were worthless, but when it comes to it, if you look at verse 6, Israel really wanted a king because they wanted to be like the other nations. He says, give us a king to judge us. Verse 20 says, give us a king so we will be like all the nations. So in a sense, Israel selfishly wanted what they wanted. And as Samuel rightly understands it, goes back to the idea we talked about before. They were losing trust in God. They're losing their trust in God. Look at the conversation Samuel has with God in verse 8 and 19. Verse 8, he says, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king who's going to reign over them. So he's going to say, you know what? Warn them that they're selfish, desires have consequences, as do ours. Here's the consequences of having a king like the other nations, starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him. He said, these will be the way the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of 50. Some to plow his ground, some to reap his harvest, some to make his implements of war. Verse 13, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Boy, that's pretty prejudice, giving women those jobs. Isn't it, Missy? Why can't they command the army? I'm sorry. Man, the kings back in there were prejudiced. I never really realized that till now. Verse 14, He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants, so meaning he's going to tax you big time. That's what he means. Verse 16, He'll take your male servants, female servants, best of your young men, your donkeys, put them to work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be a slaves. And in that day, You'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. So what he's saying, you're going to get what you want. Be careful what you ask for. Sometimes you pray for things that are very selfish. All right, you're going to have it, but don't come complaining to God when you get it. That's what he's saying. They didn't see God's way, of him being king as inherently superior. They wanted to blend in with the nations around them. That's what verse 20 says. Look at verse 20. Why do they want a king? That we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But ultimately, they wanted to be just like everybody else. Human beings throughout time have this, we have this tendency to conform to the patterns we see around us. If you don't believe me, why else was the mullet popular for about five years? So odd to me. Most of these patterns, most of these conform patterns, are driven by pride, power, competition, and superiority. Because of this, Jeremiah says, do not learn the customs of the nations. Paul says, do not be conformed in the same patterns of the unregenerate. John says, be careful of worldliness. Worldliness is lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I want to be better than you. Jesus says, the Gentiles exercise lordship over one another, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Lord Acton puts it like this, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is what Samuel's getting at. What Samuel's getting at is the farther your leadership strays from God, the more absolute the leadership will be. The more you will have to serve underneath their thumb. People who are given absolute power are not strong enough to resist their darkest desires to rule over others. In a sense, the more our country does not acknowledge God, the more worried we should become. Because it's really God alone that can keep this demon of power subjected. Once you take God out of the way, oh, we love power. It's in us. We like it. It's funny, in this uh, book, Charles Coulson wrote it. It's called Kingdoms in Conflict. He said when he worked for Richard Nixon in the Oval Office, he said Richard Nixon, before he was a president, was a completely different person. He said, you know what changed him? when he got that Oval Office, he said you can almost feel, it's almost palpable, this desire for power. It's in us. And that's what Samuel's talking about. But they didn't heed his warnings. They didn't listen to him. And as we keep studying the kings, you will see how this germ of pride and power and authority will corrupt Israel completely. It will be very corrupting. We never should forget this one thing. Never forget True faith, true faith, meaning believing God's word, also believe the warnings of God are just as true as the promises. Samuel's warning them, don't get a king. If you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to take your kids. But they didn't care. They just wanted what they wanted. I think for us, we think faith is just naming and claiming good things. Faith is just believing God's going to do great things for me. No, no faith is also believing that God's warnings are going to happen too Galatians 6-7 says this do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap he holds God people personally responsible for their sins he does so if you make choices that come from motives that are selfish be careful be careful Andrew, I missed my slide earlier, didn't I? My first point. Should I ignore it? Should I talk about it? It's up to you. I give you power and you acquiesce. Here's what I was going to say. Okay, you remember early on, if if you look at 1 Samuel 8, this is something that really bothered me as I was studying it. If you look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges. And they were wicked. It says in verse 3, they took bribes, they perverted justice. And I just was thinking through this question. Why do so many children of first-generation believers stop believing? This really bothered me as I go through this because Samuel had two sons and they were wicked. Before that, Aaron, Moses' brother, had two sons and his two sons offered up a strange fire and they were consumed by God. Eli, Eli, the next priest before Samuel had two sons, and his two sons, were, they were the ones that were terrible. They would, they would sleep with women in front of the tent of God. And my question as I was going through it is, why do so many children, even in a Christian church, of people who are first generation, by first generation means if you are saved out of life, Where you didn't know God, you come to God later in your life. Often, kids from the first generation don't have the same love that their parents do. I have known PK kids who've turned from the faith and being a pastor myself. I am worried that my kids won't want the God that I've grown to love. And I'm thinking through, is there any hope for the second generation? I have two ideas. I would say, number one, you must first live what you're teaching. You just got if you're a parent, you got to live what you're teaching. And but I think even more important is secondly, don't assume because your kids have entered this church building with you that they have become Christians. Don't assume because you've showed them veggie tales or sang them the Christian or read them the Christian story of Christmas at Christmas time underneath the tree or showed them, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, and see, they gave that gift to Jesus too. Don't assume that they, they adopt it because you have. Let them hurt sometimes. Let them find God on their own. Anyhow, sorry I missed that. It, was, it would have been a smooth sermon if it would have been at the right time, but I couldn't go past that point because it bothers me, and it should bother you. So my second point was, the first point is sometimes we make, we make decisions bad out of pure motives. Sometimes, a lot of times, we make decisions out of impure motives, selfish. And here they wanted a king because the other nations had one, but God gives in pretty easy. Why does God give them what they want? I mean, verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8, And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. So he told God, he said, they want a king, God. In verse 22, the Lord says to Samuel, all right, obey their voice and make them a king. Go go find them a king. So Samuel told the people of Israel, go home to your cities. And what he meant by that is, I'll find a king among the tribes of Israel. Why would he give in to their selfishness so easily? Why? Why? Sometimes our decisions come from pure reasons, sometimes from impure reasons, and sometimes when we make requests from those impure reasons, God answers them. Why? I think there's one more motive behind all of our decisions. The best way to state it is behind our decisions, there is always working the divine motives as well. God is always working underneath the surface, even when we... Make bad decisions. Some of us are. We won't even make decisions because we're worried that if we make the wrong decision, God's going to punish us the rest of our life. Ooh, I didn't choose the right will of God. Actually, Jared had this question. Jared, did you have the question? Is it? Oh no, Ken gave you the question a week before. Jared, does God have one right spouse for you, and you got to choose that one right spouse? And if you don't, you've ruined your life. How did you answer that? See? And we're going to ordain you. Really good. No, the point is, basically the point is, God is always working underneath. He's always working for his purposes. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In this case, Believe it or not, God already knew they would want a king hundreds of years before they desired a king. It's ironic. God says the reason they want a king is because they're selfish, but what we're going to learn is God already knew they are going to want a king. And look, if we go to Deuteronomy 17, this is pretty interesting. Deuteronomy 17. And it's verse 15. Deuteronomy 17, 15. This is hundreds of years before Samuel was upset that they wanted a king. Deuteronomy 17, 16. Only, uh, let's start in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it, dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So he's saying here, they're going to want a king. They're going to want a king out of wrong motives, but go ahead and give them a king. And he said that hundreds of years before. So he knew this would happen. God saw it coming. And God gives them exactly what they want. A man that is their choice, the people's choice. King Saul. There is nobody like this man. God gives them exactly what they want. If We go to 1 Samuel 9. Let's check this guy out. He's amazing. 1 Samuel 9. There's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebeel, the son of Zeor, the son of Becherach, the son of Affiah. He's a Benjamite, a man of wealth. So... Samuel's dad, or Saul's dad, was a man of wealth. So the first thing we can say about this people's choice, this guy was raised in privilege. He knew money, and you know with money comes sophistication, and this guy guy had to be smart, raised in wealth. Look at verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was... Not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So this guy was good looking. If you notice, their first king is chosen by really what I would say outward evidences. This guy was rich and good looking. I was talking about this with the first service. Have you ever seen the most, those uh, what do they call that guy? Joe, what do they call that guy? The most what man? Yeah, the most interesting man in the world. In my mind, the guy that they chose, the new guy, he's he's not that interesting, is he? He's kind of ugly. He's not as good looking as the first guy. Would you agree with me, Derek? His nose is kind of twisted a little bit. Kind of weird. What, Mike? Mike, you're not playing anymore. There's a king. There's authority here. That is kind of a compliment, because that is, (laughs) thing. Because the next part's just like me. He's physically impressive as well. Look at verse (laughs) 2. said he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And it says, from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. That means he was a head taller than everybody else. So actually he's more like Derek than me. He's physically attractive and huge. Verse 17 of chapter 9. Verse 17 says, when Samuel saw Saul, so Samuel got to see Saul. So, what? This sermon is falling apart. This is terrible. So, 17, I'll just read the verse. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So he's very strong, powerful, capable. And in uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 9, he becomes anointed. Look at verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. He will save you from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign that you that the Lord has anointed you. So this anointing, Samuel takes oil, pours it over Saul's head. It is a visible sign that Saul has been chosen. We call that anointing or the anointed king. Another word we use for that is Messiah. Another word we use for that is Christ. Saul was the first Christ, anointed one, crowned king. And basically, this anointing is a visible sign that the Holy Spirit is going to empower him. In fact, in the New Testament, which we are basically in this church age, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. He lives in us. We're filled with him. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God would give the Holy Spirit to certain people, like prophets and kings to empower them. They didn't indwell them. But what's interesting about this is it's not only a visible sign, an outward sign, it's also an inward sign to the man that he's chosen by God. So if we look at verse um, 5, in verse 5 of chapter 10, it says, After that you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them. This is Jared's worship team, just like them, dancing down the hill. And they will be prophesying. That means they're speaking forth truth. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. So the anointing is a sign that he's chosen by God outwardly, but it's also the Spirit is poured on him, made him a new man to show him inwardly he's chosen by God. So you could say, this guy's amazing, raised in privilege, attractive, impressive, powerful, anointed, and then he's publicly confirmed. Go to verse 17 of chapter 10. By publicly confirmed, the whole nation now is notified, this is the guy. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. He said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You have said to him, set a king over us, Therefore, now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes. So all the tribes came and by your thousands. So the tribes came. Verse 20, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. So he chose lots. There were 12 lots. He chose the tribe of Benjamin's lot, meaning from that tribe, I'm going to pick the king. Verse 21, So then he just exclusively brought the tribe of Benjamin, and he brought them clan by clan. That means family by family. And he chose the the Matrites. And Saul, the son of Kish, then, out of the Matrites, was taken. So God wanted to show the people that he was going to choose. He chose them by lots. chose the tribe of Benjamin. It gets smaller, the clan of Matrites. And then the son is Saul. So he chose Saul. So you could say he was publicly confirmed. Saul was the man. If we had an NFL combine for kings, Saul would have been the first draft. Head, head over everybody else. But here's what I find actually kind of funny, but very frustrating. Look at verse 23 through 27. This is very frustrating. So they find the perfect guy. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there, and when they stood among the people, he's taller than all of the people, and he's from his shoulders upwards. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him, who the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! This is the guy! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book. They laid it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people home, each to his own home. Saul went home. He lived in Gibeah. And with Saul went men of valor. So these strong guys of valor. that God touched their hearts, saying, We're going to be Saul's men. But look at verse 27. But... Some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him. And they brought him no present. But Saul held his peace. Here's what I find frustrating. He's still not good enough. You can find the most perfect man, and he still won't be good enough. As much as we argue and debate politics, Do you know no one will ever be good enough for us, ever? I was telling Jared, Jared's going to be given a charge tonight, and that means the guy's going to give him some instructions. And I would say, Jared, here's my instruction to you if you want to be a pastor. You can please some of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time. But you cannot please all of the people all of the time. And some of us will never be satisfied with whoever's in office, whoever's a pastor, whoever's our coach, whoever's our teacher. We're just fickle. I want you to notice one more thing about Saul It's very strange, and I need to point this out, because it is very important, especially for next week. There is a character quality about Saul that is going to prove itself out his whole life. If you notice something, all of these are relatively outward signs. He is proud of himself because of these outward signs. He had everything, humanly speaking. But he was lacking one thing. And I want to show you in verse 22 and 23. So they pick Saul by lot. Verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clan, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, meaning when they looked for him, they wanted to crown him. When they looked for him, they couldn't find him. He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there man still to come? Is he not the right man? And God said, He's hiding. He's hiding among the baggage. He's here, but he's hiding. He's scared. He didn't want to do it. Even though God confirmed everything, he didn't trust God enough that God would fulfill his calling. Saul was a man's man, but he was not God's man. He was not. I call him a self-reliant man, and I think, One thing most self-reliant people forget is this verse. And this is what I told Jared. This is the verse you need to remember. This verse, actually when I first was called to be pastor, it scared me half to death. This verse, oh, it's so good. But most self-reliant people don't believe this. Listen to what it says. He who calls you, he who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. But if you're always trusting in yourself your abilities, your education, if you're always trusting in yourself, you will be presented with an opportunity in a situation where you know you can't do it. And because you know you can't do it, even though you think God wants you to do it, but you have relied on yourself, you probably won't give it a try. I have found many perfectionists who are great when there's no pressure. But when they are asked to do the difficult thing, they usually won't step up because they are afraid of failure. Failure scares them after that. death. Some people are only used to trusting in themselves. And so when they are asked to trust God, they don't. I think that was Saul's problem. He really wasn't fully dependent on God. He thought everything depended on him. There's this need for control. People have this need for control. And you know what? A need for control to control all of your circumstances, all of your events during the day, all of your kids. A need for control often is a betrayal that you don't trust God. So the final question I have is, why did God give into their demands? Because they were really selfish. They wanted what the other nations... Why did God give in? And it goes back again to divine motives. We are going to learn Saul is going... They are going to get what they asked for. Saul is not going to be the most perfect king. But I personally think this desire for a king is a God-given longing buried deep inside of every single one of us. I think our obsession for politics is just a shadow of our desire to have somebody, somebody rule that's incredible. I think it's inside of us. My personal belief is this desire is given because we know we cannot really order the complexities of this life. It's above us. It's above our ability. We want to be cared for. We want to be comforted. We want to be protected. We want to be provided for, and we know it's going to be found in a single man, a king. I believe this desire is how we've been designed. I think that's why we come here every Sunday, because we worship him, the one we've been longing to have on our throne ever since we've been born. God puts it like this in Psalm 2.6. Actually, Psalm 2.6 is speaking about this desire from eternity. And God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's his king? The anointed one. It says later in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. Who is the son? The son of Jehovah. Psalm 11.4 says about this king, he is right now sitting in his holy temple. goes on to say, His eyes see you. They see you. His eyelids test the children of men. In fact, the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament confirm what the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. Look at all these verses included in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are pointing to one person. One king. My favorite is Jeremiah 23.5. Turn to that. Book of Jeremiah, middle of your Bible, after Isaiah, chapter 23, verse 5. This is called a messianic verse, meaning it's pointing to the Messiah who's to come, the one who will be anointed from God, the Christ. And just follow what it says, Jeremiah 23.5. It says, Behold, the days are coming. They're not here yet, but they're coming. Declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, David is going to be one of the kings and this saying, and raise up a son out of David's tree, out of his family tree. And he's going to be a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Here's his name. The Lord. Another word for that. If you notice in your Bible it's capital L-O-R-D we use the word Jehovah. I am who I am. The Lord is our righteousness. His name is Jehovah. Our righteousness. Meaning, here's his name. You know how we become righteous? Him, who is Jehovah. He is our righteousness. He's going to come. He's the King. The King is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The King is the one who died on the cross and rose again the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. He's the king. I like how Haggai 2.7 describes him in the King James. He is the desire of all nations. The ESV says he is the treasure. He is the treasure. In other words, he is what we have been made to want. The true heart of a Christian shouts one thing, and it shouts it towards Jesus Christ. Long live. Do you believe that? Do you shout that? Do you want him to rule over your life? I believe if you truly are a Christian, that is your greatest desire, your greatest dream, and you cannot wait for that day.